Welcome to episode 460 with my guest, Dr. Perry Helkitis. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The social media handles you can follow me at are at MentalPod, and MentalPod.com is the website. Go uh, go to the website, fill out some surveys. Maybe we'll read your survey on the air. Um, there's also a forum there. You can support the show uh, through the through the website, all kinds of good stuff. Um, I am feeling the effects of the shortened days, the Pretty much every fall that rolls around, especially in November after daylight savings time, I just this depression creeps in and it's not anything earth shattering or paralyzing. It's just a feeling of of being numb and most of the things that I enjoy just I don't quite enjoy them as much. I mean I had a good day yesterday, but today is kind of a classic fall depression day. It, I really have a hard time getting any work done and um today's episode is outside the interview is just going to be one survey in front of it and one survey behind it and i'm not going to apologize i'm not going to be a people pleaser that's where i'm at um i know i'll I'll come out the other side uh of this i always do it just kind of sucks when i'm in it because everything feels like it's it's lifting weights so there you have it our sponsor for today is betterhelp.com if you have never tried online counseling i really really recommend betterhelp.com i love my therapist and i love sitting down every monday afternoon we do a video chat and she helps me so, so much. She's helped me work through so many issues over the last couple of years, and I feel totally safe uh, in her care, would you call that? Under under uh, under her satellite? <laughs> what would the term be? Uh, but she's awesome. So if you uh, want to know more, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so that they know you came from this podcast. Then fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor so you can experience a free week of counseling to see if it's right for you. You need to be over 18. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mad Woman in the Attic. And she writes, When I was 12, my mom began a sexual relationship with my former brother-in-law. I learned about it, not being told, but by observing their flirtatious and overtly sexual behavior towards each other. The relationship was eventually brought to light when another family member walked in on them making out in the bathroom. If you're, if you're going to have sex with your daughter's husband, you got to do it in the bathroom. That's the only classy place to do it. When my sister found out, she was understandably enraged. It's a long story, and this is stating the obvious, but she and my mom have had a complicated relationship. And ever since my sister was in college, her life has been total chaos. Drugs, alcohol, having one baby after another, and multiple husbands. Meanwhile, my mom continued seeing my sister's former first husband and eventually marrying him. They are still married to this day, 30 years later. I was the only kid left at home when it all started, so I got to observe my mom's developing romance with my former brother-in-law firsthand. 
To add to the complexity, did I mention that my sister and this ex have a child together? That's right. My mom is stepmother to her grandson. (laughs) Believe it or not, I am close to my mom. Despite some egregious behavior, she's been a wonderful and supportive mother in many respects. She's had this way of really seeing me. My relationship with her is not contentious as the way hers has been with my sister. I try to hold together all the good and the bad in a way that doesn't make my head explode. Anyway, flash forward to the present day. I give my mom a call to check in. We talk about how she's planning to attend my nephew's graduation in another part of the country next month. She mentions that my sister, my nephew's mother, plans to attend as well. My mom sighs. I just don't understand her and the choices she makes in life. True to form, my sister, still married to her fourth husband, recently started having an affair with her boss. She moved in with the guy and took her young daughter with her. It turns out she's bringing the boss with her on the trip to the graduation. It's inappropriate, my mom says. Why does she have to bring him along and put her kids through that? Nobody's Nobody's cool cool and everyone's everyone's scared. scared. And we're just all in this together. There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I want out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm going to stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to help you one day. People are going to love you for that. It takes a lot of work. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Dr. Perry Helkitis. I'm pronouncing that correctly? Correct. Uh, you're a doctor and you have so many degrees. I'm not, uh, there should be a whole Jeopardy show just on people guessing how many degrees you have. Your, your areas of expertise are psychology, public health, LGBTQ issues, right. the history of LGBTQ movements, the intersection of those things. What, what a, benefit to society somebody like you is to to be able to pull all of these important things and to bring them together and look at them through a single lens so i'm excited to to talk to you especially uh you've lived in new york city since 1981 80 i've lived in new york city my whole life oh your whole life it's 1963 oh you were in queens before Uh, yeah i was uh, i grew up in the city my parents uh immigrated to new york from greece in the 1950s and i've been there my whole life okay and i'm just gonna move your mic over just a tiny bit okay there we go uh i have always been interested in stonewall what new york was like in the 80s when you know the 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 whole aids crisis exploded and our government was doing nothing Mm -hmm. how it affected the artistic community how it affected individual people um the effect on 
people's psyches, all of that. So uh, go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, look, I, I, I actually just recently wrote an editorial for the American Journal of Public Health tracing the Stonewall riots to the AIDS epidemic to the way we're dealing with LGBTQ issues nowadays, right? And I, you know, the, the 80s were a, a very difficult time. There's no doubt about it. There was a lot of death. There was a lot of loss. And for, and for the people who aren't familiar with Stonewall, if you could kind of set the scene. June 28th, 1969, New York City, the Stonewall riots, the beginning of the LGBTQ rights movement. Prior to that time, uh, people throughout the country, uh, in New York and other parts of the country, were arrested for even congregating. They were not allowed to socialize together. So there were all these hidden clubs and you know, men would go to dance with men and women would go to dance with women. And, you know, you couldn't openly love who you wanted to love. It was, uh, being a gay person was considered a psychopathology until 1974. What, what was the discussion like among people who were openly gay between each other about this being pathologized as a, as a mental disorder? Did, did, a lot of people believe it and hate themselves as a result. Well, I think a lot of people believe it now, actually, still. I think that, you know, that, that what permeates our society even to this day when we think about conversion therapy and, you know, other forms of, like, illegal and unethical treatments is that people have internalized this idea that something is not normal about being a gay person, right? And so in the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1940s and the 1930s, people suppressed their identity. They suppressed their sexuality. Um, do I think that some people thought it was a, an illness? Of course they did, and they didn't act upon it. Or, those who did act upon it, like, you know, Billy Haynes, for example, who was this very famous actor from the 1920s, like a, a, a number one actor in our country, you know, chose to live his life openly, right, and as a gay man, and was completely ostracized from Hollywood. So if anybody wanted That's probably to, why I've never heard of him. Right. And he was, you know, in the era of Clark Gable, you know, this amazing, talented I think the number one um, matinee attraction in 1930 and, you know, completely erased from the history books because he chose to be with his partner and have his life. And he clearly didn't think being a gay man was a problem. But, you know, for a lot of people, even to this day, for a lot of young people who are who are raised in, in communities and in religious traditions where, you know, homosexuality is considered anathema still, you know, there is an internalization uh, and a, and a, a self-loathing that develops because society is giving you the message that something is wrong with you. Right. Something needs to be fixed. Right. Um, you're not enough. Uh, you know, you're evil, as some religions would, uh, would would say. And then, you know, their little loophole of, you know, I love you, but, uh, you know, uh, I love the sinner, but I hate the sin. Well, if you love the quote-unquote sinner, fucking treat him better. Absolutely. Look, I mean, I think this is one of the things I write about in, the, in this book that I wrote out in time, um, you know, where I talk to three generations of men, men who are like now in their 60s and 70s that I call the Stonewall generation, men of my age who are in their 40s and 50s of the AIDS generation, and then young guys in their 20s, the queer generation. Um, you know, it's very easy to feel like an other Right when you're being when you're raised in a you know predominantly heterosexual society, so even you know I, I I talk in the book this idea this I dispel this idea that it's so easy to be a gay man nowadays because yes there is marriage equality yes there have been definitely been advances. However, when at three or four or five you don't know those things. All you know is that there's something different about you, mm -hmm. and so this othering that takes place 
very often turns into that loneliness and that desperation and that self-loathing that for many LGBTQ people predominates their lives. What are some of the common unhealthy coping mechanisms that people reach for in the absence of support? Well, we know that the LGBTQ population um, has higher levels of mental health distress than the general population, higher levels of depression, higher levels of anxiety. There is reliance on substances as a means of coping and ameliorating those feelings. There's a reliance on sex to, to, to combat those feelings, too. These are quick fixes. Mm-hmm. So in the absence of being able to sort of manage those negative feelings about yourself— I understand, and I'm not going to judge, you know, the fact that people are turning to alcohol and other drugs or to sex to to, to, to negate those feelings. Ultimately, we need better solutions. Mm-hmm. And what we need to do is, like, normalize being a gay person in the society. Once you normalize that, all of these health issues sort of disappear. Okay. Give us a, uh, a, a history briefing. Um, describe the events. Uh, you know, paint a picture of what it looked like pre-Stonewall, what happened at Stonewall, what changed, and then the different era, the, the, the AIDS era, yeah. the, the a queer generation, as, as you call it, and, and where we are today. Let's do milestones. So we had yes. this, this period in the 50s and 60s where there's some rumblings of, you know, gay life in New York City. I'm going to talk about New York City because I think that's the heart of it all. You know, the Madison Society meeting and having conversation about what it means to be gay. It's all very intellectual and also very hidden. Um, but people are congregating. People want to socialize. People, people are social animals, right? So they want to be with others who are like them. You think about immigrant populations, for example. My parents, who are immigrants from Greece, lived in a neighborhood where they were all Greeks. You want to be with the people who are like you. So as a gay person, you're looking for people who are like you too. So in the 1950s and the 1960s, little clubs, you know, appeared, uh, sites and social venues where people could gather. The Stonewall Inn was one of these places in Greenwich Village. Now, the problem was that there were still laws on the books that had made homosexuality illegal. And so the police, depending on what political impetus there was, would raise these bars and these clubs and and how would they define being homosexual just simply stating i'm gay no. same-sex people kissing each other touching each other right touching, each, touching other. each other so you could enter to walk a, down the, the the street holding hands you could be arrested back well then. you couldn't do that in the 1950s and 1960s i mean you can you can't even do that in some parts of the united states nowadays right but certainly when the police would raid those environments they were looking for people touching each other that was the ultimate sign that something was going on right it could have been perfect. It could have been two straight men hugging each other, but it appeared like it would be two gay men, and they would raid the bars. And so, you know, so move fast forward to 1969. It's getting it escalates, and it's and and and, and the community is beginning to feel more empowered. And as a result of that, you have this rebellion, this riot that takes place in the summer of 1969, where people say, "Enough's enough." You know, a, a rebellion and a riot that's not led by just gay men and gay women, but by trans, by trans women and, and people of color. And, you know, this, this very beautiful rainbow of individuals fighting against the police, you know, that went on for several days. And that's the beginning. And, and talk about, uh, to the brutality, because it, from, from what I've read, it, it wasn't just, oh, we're going to arrest you for touching each other. The, the, the depth of the harassment and the, 
humiliation. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, people were beaten. They were they were beaten. They were verbally. They were, look, I mean, I think gay people. You could lose your job. Absolutely, you could lose your job. You could lose your job for being a gay person. You could lose your job for being a gay person nowadays. Still, right? We have the Equality Act that was passed by the House of Representatives recently. It's not going to pass the Senate. You know, um, for, we don't have to go wide into that. But you know, it's like it's very easy to to lose to lose your livelihood even to this day. But certainly in in the 1950s and the 1960s, you know, prior to the Stonewall riots, you had your no, no recourse. You had yeah. No recourse. You had absolutely no recourse, and you could be beaten physically. You could be beaten emotionally. You know, um, and you could lose everything that you had worked for. And so, many people suppress their identities throughout the course of their lives, um, and you know, never were able to live the lives that they should have lev- lived. Mm-hmm. And so what happened at Stonewall? So at Stonewall, we have the beginning of the, we have the rebellion, people saying, no more. We're not gonna, we're not gonna do this anymore. And so that sparks, uh, you know, that, that spark, that, that catalyzes a movement in New York City, which spread, spreads throughout the country. Certainly it was going on in, 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 on the West Coast, in, in California, in San Francisco, in LA also. And did they fight the police? What did they, they did fight the police. They, okay. you know, they threw things, they fought, they took control of the bar. They just refused to go. Mm-hmm. In a very similar way, well, and in in actually, in a very similar way, that the ACT UP, you know, which is a group that that formed at the at the at the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, fought the police, and when they were demanding that you know the federal government pay attention to the to the to the epidemic. In fact, I actually think that the 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 skills that the gay community gained from the Stonewall riot got transferred into you know the AIDS the AIDS movement. So you have this movement, you have a social you know like with everything else like there's a climate change, there is a political shift, there is a a shift in the landscape that takes place. And you know over the course of the next few years, by 1973 1974, the American Psychological Association, the American Psychiatric Association, dispel the idea that homosexuality is this abnormality, the psychopathology, and you begin to have a normalization of what it means to be an LGBT person, to be a gay person. Okay, so now we're, mm-hmm. we're things are looking up, up good here, right? Because gay bars are appearing, people aren't getting arrested, people get to hold hands that walking down the street, maybe not so much in Arkansas, but certainly in San Francisco and in New York City, they're getting to do that in LA. And then it's 1981, and all of a sudden this like viral pathogen hits and the beginning of the AIDS crisis. And so now... Here's a movement that has been move, has 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 helped advance the well-being of this population. This disease comes and in some ways manifests all of the negative feelings society has about gay people as weak as sick and in fact here's this disease that's making people weak and sick you know the, the wrath of god you know you know mm-hmm. for having all this sex and in fact in this editorial that i talked about earlier i wrote that there's no clear evidence you know some people would argue that it's the, the sexual promiscuity of the 1970s that allowed aids to happen there's no evidence that that's really true in fact we know that it pro- that aids has probably existed in our in our um in our bloodstream since the 1950s 30s, 40s, and 50s. Yeah, I read that. I read something right. about that. It's been right. there, right? And so it was just it was ready to happen at mm-hmm. some point in time. And so it was not necessarily, you know, the sexual liberation of the 70s that allowed it to happen. But you know, you have the 1980s, and you have this like enormous death, which is devastating. And for me, as a young gay man growing up in New York City, with all the promise of Stonewall, right, mm-hmm. and all the promise of being able to love openly and freely, that just shifted everything in the 1980s. 
I actually think what it also did, what actually had a, a beneficial effect, it, 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 if Stonewall said to the to American society, "We're here, and you're not going to arrest us," what the AIDS crisis did was say, "You have to take care of us." Right, right. You have to pay attention it's, to it's, us. It's more than just passive freedom. Right, you right. have to actively. Right, we are members of this society, which I then think brings us into the two thousands, where like we have need to have the same rights as everybody else, which is, means that we get to marry who we love, yes. we get to get our husbands or our wives social security benefits, and I think that these course of like marriage equality happens because you have AIDS and and the reaction to AIDS, and AIDS happens because you have the storm. Rights. And without these events over the course of the last 50 years, some of which were very devastating, and I would never underestimate, I would never, I would never say that the AIDS crisis was not a horrible time for the gay community. It absolutely was, and it continues to be. But at the same time, let's flip it on its head and say that it was also demonstrated how powerful and resilient mm-hmm. the population was. And, and I think uh, how it drew out uh, the people in the country who were non-judgmental and who who said you know we want to be a part of this movement we may not identify as gay but right. you know you are every bit as much of a uh, our brothers and sisters as hetero right. uh, people are right and and like look i mean you you look at all of the polling over the course of the last 50 years about you know people you know accepting you know you know, I'm not going to say gay lifestyle. I hate, that, I hate that term, lifestyle. Accepting gay people for who they are, and the numbers just continue to increase over time. Mm-hmm. And certainly among millennials, mm-hmm. right? This is not an issue, right? Yeah. For millennials whose 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 gender and their sexuality is so fluid in a way that's that probably very different from our generation, right? Yeah. You know, it's like this: the thought that that you would reject somebody because of who they love is just un- unbelievable to them. Yeah. Uh, I also think MTV played a big part in helping normalize people that uh, weren't, you know, binary or uh, uh, hetero. Well, the eighties did that, right? So we had that. Yeah. Remember we had that, that all of that gender bending stuff of the nineteen eighties, right? Yeah. A term that we probably didn't use in the nineteen eighties, gender bending, but we're right. using it now. Of like Boy George, right? Yeah. You know, you know, Culture Club, that whole thing, Adamant, that whole new Annie wave Lennox. movement. Annie yeah. Lennox, right? So you be so this is gets back to my point of earlier. It's about normalization. Mm-hmm. It's about saying, Hey, this is it and not reacting. The story I always tell um, about my parents and coming. Oh, actually, I'm, I'm not going to tell you that story. The story I'm going to tell you uh, is about my friend, my best friend George, to whom the book is dedicated. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is somebody I've known for 52 years. Uh, we've known each other since we've been four years old. And when I was 18, I was during high school. It was 1977 to 1981. I chose to be in the closet, and I wanted to go to prom, and I wanted to have a girlfriend, and I wanted to do all those things, right? Mm-hmm. But I knew I was a gay man. As soon as I went to college at Columbia, I, I came out and I you know, started having sex with men. And, you know, it was complicated for me because even though I was across the river from Queens in Manhattan at Columbia University, you know, the whole community had gotten wind of the fact that here was this young man who was who was gay. And I remember g- getting off the subway one day 
you know, probably in my, the end of my freshman year, um, a fresh, the first term of, of my freshman year at Columbia and seeing my friend George as I was went, going back to Queens. And I said to him, you know, George, hey, you know, you probably heard, blah, 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 I'm gay. You know, some, something to that effect. And his, and, and his reaction to me was like, hey, look, I'm going to see the Mets on Saturday. You want to come with me? That's what I mean by normalization, right? right. He didn't make a big deal about it. He didn't say, oh, let's talk about it. He just said, let's go to the baseball game together. Right. And that, when we get to that point in society where everybody can react that way, the the pain and the otherness and the loneliness and the depression are going to be wiped away. I should be like saying, by the way, my favorite color is orange. Right. Oh, cool. Right. My hair is brown. Right. right. Exactly. But we're not there. We're no, certainly we're not. not there. Right. We can't even deal. Like, I mean, come on. We're, we live in a society that can't even deal with the fact that we have like a, a royal that's like one quarter African-American. Right. You know, right. that's a huge deal. Yeah. Uh, in, in the process of doing this podcast over the last uh, eight years, I have been confronted with the fact that uh, I had a lot of blind spots in uh, what I knew about the LGBTQ community, especially the trans community. Mm-hmm. When I started doing the podcast, I didn't even know that shemel was a derogatory term. You know, it, it was embarrassing. Uh, but you know, thankfully, the the listeners have educated me and enlightened me gently and uh, and lovingly along the way. And I. I think you would probably agree that that's that's the way to do it is is to not shame buddy shame somebody for not knowing but to say hey let's you know let's let's all enjoy this movement towards the future and help Yes. Educate I w- each other. I would completely agree with that. And I will tell you that, you know, again, as a 56-year-old, right, I, I joke with my my students and in my in my research lab. I'm like, you know, in the 80s, we just had like, you know, gain straight. You could, and I could barely deal with that, right? But it is a completely different – we're in a completely different place. I feel that my – I continue to learn and grow because, you know, my students teach me. Right, mm-hmm. how to think think about issues of gender being on a spectrum and sexual right. identity being on a spectrum in a way that I never thought about, you know, thirty right. years ago. And and it, at first, I think the inclination is for people that don't, uh, who aren't particularly empathetic, is to think, oh well, now it's a fad, and everybody just. And, and the moment I found myself thinking that, I thought, no. People have felt this way forever. Right. They're just now feeling comfortable enough to be able to say, I don't really identify as male or female. And I don't have a word for what it is. Right. And I don't need to have a word for what it is. Right. I just know how I like to dress. And maybe some days I want to be referred to as he, and then another day I want to be referred to as she. And we, it, it, it's 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 safer than it was, right? In in a way, in a similar way, this is a parallel story. Like you know, when I went to Rutgers a couple of years ago, and I was recruited to be the dean there, you know, the newspaper and, and the newspapers and the local press there made a very big deal about me, an openly gay man, becoming the dean. And it's not like other individuals who had been gay before had not been deans, but I led with being gay, and right. right and you know that might not seem like no a huge Perry. Deal. Nobody gay had ever been in a position no, of power <laughs> anywhere, <laughs> right? But I could be there and say I am a gay man, and this is and this and I study you know gay men's health, right? And by the way, I can be a dean, right? And that was a huge deal. Um, and I think it's those little steps, you know, that move us forward. And what, you, do you, what do you think they had misgivings about? Who? They, the, 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 yeah, the, 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 just that they didn't know. I just, the unknown? Is I that, know. is that what they, what they fear? I that you're going to have an agenda? 
perhaps I actually think it's that human beings just tend to be afraid of things that are different than they are, right? Yeah. And so and it, it relates back to the immigrant story I said before. Like, you know, immigrants tend to move in with other immigrants because it feels safe. I think, you know, if you see somebody who is a different color than you or is a different race than you or is a different, you know, height than you and it's different from you, it threatens your you and who you are. And and is that a question. genetic thing you think that's going on? Um, I think that there probably is some biological mechanism for that for sure, like everything else. Like, you know, I believe homosexuality and gay identity is is everything. Like if my hair color is genetic, my certainly my sexual orientation is genetic. But I think it's reinforced but, by society. But I mean the other the fear of otherness. Yeah, I think there probably is. And I think that's and I think that society look, I think human beings have we are born into this world with these biological predispositions, right? Mm -hmm. And the question is to what extent does the our society and our culture and our family reinforce them? You know, for me, I had fortunately had the parents who were like didn't believe in the othering, right? But for many people, they they do. were supportive when you they came were out. Supportive. They, they were. Oh, my parents were amazing when I came out. They were just like people were like, oh, you were so lucky. I'm like, no, they just did their job, right? right? They just loved their son, and right. that's all that really mattered. He's and such a nice person. He didn't murder me. Right, exactly. Yes. They just love, like, that's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to say, right. hey, we love you, right? But that's how low the bar was, that, you know, to be, right. to not disown somebody, you know, we're going to give you a trophy. Yeah, and you know what's really fascinating to me about the whole thing, though, is, like, my story in 1981 coming out, you know, doesn't sound so different from the story for somebody coming out in 1951, and certainly doesn't sound different from the story of my cousin's son who came out to me and my husband a few years ago who for all intents and purposes should have had an easy process right mm -hmm. i was there everybody was at our wedding everybody loved us no problem we love perry we love bobby all, all is good right but jamie struggled with it also which meant which was the impetus ultimately for this book to say that look there are definitely advances in our society, but that psychological process oh, yeah. is consistent. Of course. I get nervous saying, honey, I don't want to go to the restaurant that you like. I, you know, I couldn't imagine what it would be like, you right. know, even to saying that the people who were liberal saying something like that, because even if they were accepting, there might still be awkwardness. There might be patronizing chatter, you know, right. who... To, to share some some things that somebody who isn't LGBTQ doesn't know. Well, the point I come back to over and over and over again, which is what most straight people don't realize, is that as a gay person, you or as a lesbian or as a trans person, you spend your whole life coming out. The idea that you just come out once is nonsense, mm -hmm. right? You're spending your whole life telling people who you are. So I, there's a great scene in the movie Love Simon, which is based on the young adult novel Simon, Simon and the Homo Sapiens, where um, Simon, the characters in the movie are coming out to their parents as straight. And so I challenge any straight person to imagine a life where they, everywhere they go, they have to say, oh, by the way, I'm straight, mm -hmm. right? That's, that, that's rough. I, when I, it was fast, when I got to Rutgers, I had, I lived it again at like 54 years old all of a sudden because people didn't know I was a gay man. And I, you know, I fortunately at 54 had the skills that I didn't have to announce it. I would just say, oh, yeah, now I'm going to dinner with my husband and just assume that that gave the message about who, who I was. Would there be a moment of tension in your body? When there you still live? is. 
There still Talk is about a, that. There's still the moment of tension. You know when I experience it the most? I experience it in the most when I'm not, where I feel like I'm not in safe environments, right? So when I'm, when I went, when we went to Russia, when I turned 50 years old, you know, you know, where I was very conscious of the fact that we were walking down the street as gay men and, you know, people were like looking at us, you know? So there is still that feeling like I'm going to be found out. Right. And people are going to laugh at me and they're going to make fun of me um, and they're going to, you know, and talk about me. And that was always the thing that was painful to me, which is like the thought that people were talking about me about something that shouldn't have mattered, that mm-hmm. something that should have been like my eye color. Right. It's that never really goes away, that feeling. And so, you know, it's. um it's real, it's real and it's deep and it never goes away for the rest of your life, right? And it's just always going to be there. And you're constantly waiting for the other shoe to drop and to be rejected somehow because of who you are, right? Have there been moments where you were anticipating that and, and then you were met with an ideal response? Uh, well, my parents certainly was, you know, an ideal response. I remember, I remember when I told my father that I was gay at 18 years old. I was, you know, again at, at Columbia that uh, that year, and I, at that point, and came home and told him. And his response to me, "Are you sh- was I sh- was I sure?" And I said, "I thought so." I said, "You know, I, you know, I've had sex with women. I've had sex with men. I'm pretty sure I like having sex with men." Yeah. Um, and his response was. Can you live that way? Which was an interesting response. And I said, well, Dad, I have no choice on I this. love how dads make things practical. Yeah, can you live this way, right? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, Dad, I have no choice, right? And he's like, okay. And then his next comment was, well, you have to tell your mother because I have no secrets from her, right? And so yes. that was great, actually. So, um, you know, I, you know, the other thing is I, I come back to the Rutgers example. You know, I was at NYU for 20 years. I will be I, – I, I feel this is true. And maybe it's not, but maybe it's my just perception. I felt like – I couldn't go any higher in that institution because I was a gay man, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I got to Rutgers, and the fact that I was a gay man didn't didn't stop me from being a dean, right? And probably has is not going to stop me from growing even more at that institution. That is to me a sign of a, a, a an enlightened environment. So that surprised me. Yeah, it did surprise me. That's got to feel nice, huh? It feels pretty great, and it makes me want to just do more and more for that university. Nice. I would like to go back to the early 80s. Yes. Paint some vignettes, the human, emotional aspect of... Well, I'm going to tell you a couple of stories in relation to that because, you know... I'm just going to adjust your mic one more time. Yeah, absolutely. So I remember, you know, in the New York, you know, for many of us, the first time we we heard about this was, you know, we saw things around us, but, you know, nobody knew what was going on. But certainly I remember in the New York Times a story appearing in that summer, uh, I think of 1981, um, about this rare cancer that was in gay men. And I just thought, well, it's really, really odd, you know. And, you know, that is, and I remember because I was at the beach reading the Times um, at that point. I was actually on Fire Island, and I just thought, what is this thing? And, you know, it kind of gave me pause, but then I didn't think about it. You know, I it, it was incredibly – I feel like the 80s and up to 1996 were defined by just this low-grade panic. 
you know, that permeated through my body. And I, I experienced a lot of loss. My, my partner who I was with for six years died in 1994. He died in my arms. You know, um, that trauma I live with to this day, you know, there was a period in my life where like one year after the, you know, year after year after year, I was losing people in my life. Right. And so for me, um, you know, what was difficult was to see a community that appeared when I first was coming out, you know, in the late 1970s or 1980s, incredibly vibrant, all of a sudden just sort of like be decimated, you know, and, you know, the fear that was taking, taking hold. Mm-hmm. I, 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 Have you seen Fran Lebowitz's, uh, the documentary about her? She, she talks about how it decimated the artistic community. I think it is that, you know, it, you know, I, I I, I, I saw what it did to the artistic community. I saw what it did. I have this tattoo on my arm, on my arm here, which is like, you know, these five stars, which are the five people who I've lost in, lost in my life to the epidemic, like five really close people to my life. You know, it's just like it, it, it altered my life forever, right? Where I am at this point in my life and what I've chosen to do with my life is defined so much by the loss that I experienced as, as a young man in my life. And nobody should have to go through that. I, don't, I remember talking to my therapist at that point and, and she said to me, no, Perry, it's not natural. It's not natural that as a 25-year-old or a 27-year-old, you're experiencing this loss. So there was this panic. There was this fear. Nobody knew what was going on. We didn't really know till 1985 that it was a virus. Mm-hmm. It could have been this thing called inhalant nitrates or poppers, you know. Mm-hmm. It could have been drugs. It could have been um, um, because you had a million partners. But in fact, what do we know now? All it takes is one partner, right? right. And, you know, this was the, the, the confusion was what was call it was was causing the great uh, anxiety and also the inability to know what was going to happen. And I think once the virus was detected and once the test was available, despite the fact that people continue to die and heighten the most the high, the highest levels of death were in 1993, 1994. Um, you know, you knew that there was going to be an end in sight once the virus was detected, right? Because you, you knew somebody was going to find a way to tr- to contain this thing, right? But for a while there. When you didn't know, it's like, imagine you're in a dark, 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 dark room, right? And you're like, you know, your eyes haven't adjusted yet. And you're trying to feel your way around. That's kind of what it felt like to me in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. That sort of like walking in this like dark space, in this dream state, with a low level of anxiety constantly running through my body. Wow. Yeah. And I, you know, there are times where I feel it now where I'll dream of something or I'll think of something or even as I was writing the book where I relive it. The last, the last book I wrote, which was about 15 men who survived the crisis and are now adults in their fifties and sixties, was the most cathartic experience I've ever had in my life. You know, as, as I was writing their stories, I, I just, you know, was reliving all of the loss I experienced and it was just the crying that, that went on. Right. I, I, I think I spent more time crying than actually writing that book. What was it like back then when you would get a cold? What is it like now when I get a cold? You know, it's you still you, feel that. Yeah, I mean, I think that you can't escape that. Um, and for, th- for the people that, and thankfully, we have people that aren't that familiar with this because you know it, it hasn't spiraled like it. You know, it didn't in the nineties, and there are better meds now. But sure. um, for those that don't know, it would uh, the HIV virus would attack your immune system 
And the first thing that people would feel would be flu-like symptoms, right, correct? Right. So, so immediately after, now we know, now, now we know that immediately after someone is infected, within a two or three week period of time, people tend to develop this huge flu-like reaction, which actually turns out, based on the research, is a good thing. If you have a huge acute reaction, your body's fighting. Your body's fighting it, and you're actually developing, you know, the, the ability to like go on. And it seems, and somebody's some great biologist is going to actually show this. A virologist is going to show that people who had that acute reaction actually, I think, had a higher likelihood of surviving. But you know, you know, you know. When you're in, when you're, when you're coming of age in an environment where, you know, every cold, every cut, everything is devastating. As an adult, even in the presence of all these advances, you know, you see a bump on your arm and you get in panic because it's like, it's a learned reaction, right? Um, yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is, and then this is really important for the audience to know also, is like, we have 40 to 50,000 new infections a year still in this country. This disease is not gone. There are 1.2 million people living with HIV in this country, right? We know that if you are a black gay man, the chances are one in two that by age 50 you will be HIV positive. Really? It's yes. There's a huge disparity, right? So the majority of infections in this country continue to exist in the gay population and then in women. And then in the gay population and women, the African-American segment of those populations most devastated. One in two. Un- if, if, if it goes unchecked, we'll be positive by age. And is that because of lack of access to health care? Yeah. So, like, I spent a lot of my time in my research thinking about, you know, how social conditions and politics and policies and discrimination fuel health disparities, right? So I've said over and over again that HIV is as much a viral condition as it is a social condition. If it was just a viral condition... It would be an, it would be an equal opportunity destroyer, but it's mm-hmm. not. It attacks populations that are most marginalized. So, for the African American population, it is a variety of things. So, black gay men are discriminated because they're black and because they're gay, and they often don't have access to the same way that white folks do. And what we have shown in our research, and others have shown in their, their research, is not black gay men aren't having more sex or more random sex or more sex partners. But what they are doing, gay men, is that they're choosing partners based on race. And in the black community, the virus is not as well contained. And as a result, the likelihood of getting infection is greater. And so, those are pretty bad numbers. You know mm-hmm. that in you know 2019, we still have 40,000 infections when in fact we know that an HIV positive person who is on treatment and is taking their medications, cannot transmit the virus, undetectable equals untransmittable, amazing. And we know that we can. there's a, one medication, Truvada, which is used in the form of pre-exposure prophylaxis, that a negative person can take like a birth control pill, right, and not get infected if they take their pill every day. The tools are there, right? Yeah. So if the tools are there, what's wrong? Well, to me, that means it's about social conditions. And so... Uh, you know, not to get too political here, but I'm going to get political. You know, when you have a president who says, well, I'm going to bring an AIDS by 2030, you know, by putting all these meds out there, and at the same time continues to chip away at the rights of LGBT people, well, you're not going to bring an end to AIDS because you're deteriorating the social and emotional well-being of the population, and that's what's fueling the epidemic. Yeah. And I think any administration, and I'm going to get political here for a second, both sides of the aisle— you know, we spend all our money on the defense budget and yeah. and this and that and fighting wars and and it's like you know what a, 
Let's give people health care. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the wars are supposed to keep us safe. Right. And, well, health care would be a nice way to keep people safe. Yeah, but it, would, it would actually be a nice human rights thing to do that, to actually just give people the health care that they actually deserve. I actually think that, you know, yeah, I mean, if people don't have to worry about that, you know where the, how they're going to pay for their how they're going to pay for their medications. You know, I mean, I think it's 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 huge, right? But it's not where we're spending our money. As somebody who studies psychology and public health, what I, I know you probably don't have an answer to this. I don't think anybody does. But what do you find yourself thinking when you see another mass shooting? I think that it is a public. What I think is that okay, it is a, another. It is a public health crisis. I think that it is an indication of undiagnosed and untreated psychopathology in our society. It shows me that we continue to treat mental health as separate from health. Mm-hmm. In fact, where it is just health, and we don't attend as much to those issues as we do to the physical issues. And so we need to do that, right? Yes. We need to treat the depression. We need to treat the PTSD. We need to treat all of those things, and we're not. And we just we just say, oh, it's mental health. It's not really a health issue, right? I actually think the medical profession is partially responsible for that, you know, that yeah. sort of poo-pooing of, 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 of mental yes. health issues. Um, so, so that's what I think, and I think that if you – you want to solve – do I think that taking all the guns off the street is going to solve the problems? Well, it's kind of like saying do I think that just having all the meds out there in the world is going to solve the AIDS crisis. No. You need to fight the underlying cause. And the right. underlying cause are social conditions and emotional conditions that fuel these health problems. That's how you deal with it. The rest is ban- are Band-Aids. Yeah, and, and I think t- teaching kids how to identify and express their emotions uh, – would be a great thing. I can't imagine there are many shooters out there that had a lot of deep human connections and vulnerable relationships in their in their life. No, I don't so know. You, I'm, no, I, I doubt that. And I think that you know you want you want to hope that you know we could do that kind of work in our schools. But our schools are so worried about math and reading that they don't they don't think about this. So I think schools are places where we need to do social social. I, development and social education. That's I, what they should be about. And they'll learn how to read and they'll learn how to write and all of this stuff. But we're so caught up on those mechanics that we forget that there's this child there that needs to learn how to be part of society. And you know where I think the danger is? It is because there's nuance in, in teaching and, and there's ethics mm-hmm. and you know, that's going to vary from state to state of Absolutely. what people think is appropriate. Right. You know, math, there's not, you know, a, a sissy way of teaching math. Right. and right. A, right. But I, I can't imagine the discussions that are being ha- had right now in towns where they do want to begin talking about identifying emotions and setting boundaries and, and saying, you know, it's okay to cry and and what we're seeing, we see it in places like New York and in L.A. and San Francisco and Chicago and other big cities where there is that. I mean, this is but this is why you then you then have the schism in the society, right, in our society, because you have other places in the country where that conversation is not happening at all. And it comes, you know, and it's like men, men are not supposed to have feelings, right? They're supposed to be butch and masculine and contain everything. Right? How's that working out? That's not working out so well at <laughs> no. all, you know, for gay men or straight men. Or, no, it did not work in, out. Did not work out for me for for forty years. I almost drank myself to death. Well, the hyper me look. I mean, you're not, you know, hyper masculinity is toxic masculinity. Call it whatever you want. You know, you know, it is like this notion that you know you've got to be this hunter gatherer, and if you're not this like butch, resolved, totally confident man, that there's something wrong with you. 
and also the, the feeling that they're mutually exclusive. You know, I play hockey, I build furniture, and I cry in people's arms. Exactly. And, and I think they're all what makes, uh, a man. Well, because we want things to live in boxes, right? Because it's yeah. easier that way. A man acts this way, a woman acts that way, and so therefore you can't. What? What do you mean? And this is why. Let's get back to the millennials. This is why the blending is so fascinating right now. Like, look, you know, I cry, right? And I'm like this big guy, right? I'm like this big guy with a beard and everything, right? With tattoos on his arms, but I cry, right? And I think that's that's. That's hot. That's what guys are supposed to do, right? Those are the guys that I want to hang around with, right? And mm -hmm. I, I, I had the great, 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 great fortune for several years of working on a committee at the American Psychological Association where we wrote this really cool report about, you know, you know, the, the health of boys and men. You know, and we really focused on racial and ethnic minority boys and men and, and sexual minority boys and men and really put the literature out there to say, like, social conditions and this toxic masculinity, if we don't con deal away with it, the health of these, these populations is continue, going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. And so we've got to push those boundaries, right? And so how, how, what would you like to see? Let's say you had a hundred billion dollar budget and you were the, the, you know, uh, secretary of, Health, education, and welfare. Mm -hmm. I would teach. I would work with parents to teach them how to like love their children and how to have their children express their feelings. Obama said it. You know, when in, in the in the the first ever AIDS plan we had for our country, which was, by the way, for your audience, in 2010, we had an epidemic for 30 years, but not a national AIDS plan. And then we had one. And one of the things that is in that plan is this very clear statement that we want to have fathers learn how to love their gay sons, right? And that's huge, that statement, right? And so I don't care if it's their gay sons or it's their straight sons. I want parents to be able to help their children be able to express their emotions and express love, right? And not just be this mechanical robots, right? And we're far from that, right? And we're far from it partially because you know, some cultural context that's not appropriate, you know, for, for boys to act this way. And so, so we've got a way to go. But I think, again, one of the great things in our society, I think also, and this, I write about this in the book also, is that art always leads the way, right? Mm -hmm. It really does. It, whether it's painting or if it's music or if it's like film, it's always ahead of the curve. And then we, the researchers and everybody catch on later, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think the more and more you have depictions this is, you know, depictions of like being a man who is kind and emotional and loving. The more you normalize that, the more it's likely that parents will raise their their sons to be that. Way. Right. That doesn't mean he's going to be a doormat. He's not going to be a doormat. Or he's not. Gonna, he, he may be gay or he may not be gay, but who cares, right? Mm -hmm. And he's not going to be a, a sissy. And he's, you know, he can still be this super successful, whatever that means in, in somebody's life, you know, person who hasn't probably have a really good relationship with a woman or a man or anybody mm -hmm. else, right? And, you know, and it's not going to be a failure. And that's going to be like a dish rag, right? But that's the, what we're fighting against is like sissy, wimpy, you know, you can't act that way. You're not supposed to cry. I was so fortunate. I had a father who cried, like, you know, and mm -hmm. maybe it's because he was a Greek man. He cried because, you know, Greeks just cry, right? <laughs> but it was like, it was that modeling was incredibly helpful. Yeah. I can't imagine not crying, right? I, I compare it to my, so I have a, an, a, a, a very Irish Catholic husband, right? Mm -hmm. You know, who does not cry, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And he just looks at me sometimes and says, you know, he doesn't cry, right? 
he doesn't cry. He doesn't cry. Trust me. He yes. looks at me and says, like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like watching a, a film that's some, or something yes. or some stupid Hallmark Christmas movie, right? And mm-hmm. I start to cry. But I, like, I find it freeing. It's incredibly, mm. incredibly freeing, but it's really scary in the beginning when you first start allowing yourself to, to do it. Because I have found underneath that sadness is often a tremendous amount of anger, yeah, disappointment, yeah. confusion. Yeah. yeah, the things that you feel like, you know, I didn't do, I should have done it different, I should have been, I, I, yeah. I mean, I think also that's, I, I'm going to relate it back to the whole coming out thing. I think it's like, it's that scariness of like, because it opens everything up for you, mm-hmm. right? When you're like, you're testing the waters, right? And you don't know if you're going to be judged for it. You don't know, if, is, is, is my anger a bottomless pit? Am I going to lose control of myself? What's this new experience of falling apart? I actually think that the releasing of the emotions, the releasing of the the feelings is actually chips away at that anger, right? Oh, absolutely. But but then you can end up just crying for the next 10 years, right? (laughs) Maybe that's what was needed. Yeah, I think it's okay. I I totally support that. I think it's totally fine. Yeah. Uh, I heard somebody say one time, and I can't remember who it was, but they, they said it's easier to hate than to hurt. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, wow, that is so, it's so true. It's so true. And that's what's modeled in our movies is to hurt somebody, uh, you know, or to hate somebody rather than to feel hurt. Right. Well, because you were, you can't be vulnerable. Right. And that it is that vulnerability ultimately. And this is why I think relationships fail too. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think this like the, you know, and I, you know, I've started studying, you know, relationships between men and, you know, the dynamics there. And it's like, you know, the inability to be vulnerable, you know, I don't care if you're a man or a woman, a man or a man or whatever you are, mm-hmm. like what combination it's like, if you're not willing to put it out there and say like, I trust this person and I'm going to be vulnerable and I'm going to expose myself and I'm going to, I don't care that I look like crap in the morning and like, Mm -hmm. you know, and that I, and I've got these flaws, it's not going to work. Right. Because if you stay, if you keep it compartmentalized and this is where I think a lot of things, that's where the relationship falls apart. Right. 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 The ability to actually say, you know, you know, here's who I am and you know, and there's parts of me that are really great and there are parts of me that are really crappy. Right. And when that person loves that part of you it's the most amazing feeling i you know i've been i will be married 10 years in august which is like shocking to me right because Mm -hmm. one i'm a gay man i shouldn't have been like whoever knew i was going to be married right Mm -hmm. and two you know after a series after my 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 first partner died i went had this like series of like horrific relationships mostly because you know i was unresolved about his death Mm -hmm. right Duh, right? But when I was able to finally open up to a person and just be myself, yeah, it worked. It absolutely worked, right? And the person who said to me, you know, I don't care that you're Perry Halkidis well with all these degrees. Like, I just like the messy you, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what makes it magical. Yeah, the, the, the awesome thing when we claim our authenticity is we get to see how that other person shows up we get a chance for them to reveal their character. And so we have great information regardless, whether it's they can't show up for me, great, then I'm going to move on. I've got that information now. Or they can. My partner's awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a win-win when we claim our authenticity and we, you know. Well, I think this is why the other piece of 
it's interesting that we're having this conversation this, about these relation about relationships. It's like that's why I think when trust is broken, mm-hmm. I think that people meet in this space where they can be authentic and they can be vulnerable, and it works. And the minute you break the trust, it's it's really really hard to it's really just too hard to repair it can, that. It you know I think it depends on what the trust was that that was broken and you know i had a therapist say to me how people come together how they repair their relationship much like how a tree heals itself after you know it gets bent in the wind you know it can be it can be stronger than ever and ultimately you know she said that's what builds a relationship are those little tears repairing those little tears and make making sure that it's being tended Mm -hmm. tended to Mm -hmm. but yeah try i there i Intimacy yeah. without trust, uh, you couldn't have it. You couldn't have it. Yeah, I don't know. I, 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 and I think this is something that gay men grapple with, right? I think they grapple with the ability to be intimate with others. I think it's a, a huge challenge for many gay men. I think it's because, you know, we're not socialized to have relationships with another man, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody told me what it was like to have a relationship with a man, right? And, you know, and we go back to this whole masculinity thing. So you're in this, so they're in a relationship with this other person who has to be like alpha dog and like who does what, right? When you finally find that person, say, you know what? You know, I'll do this and you'll do that, and that's okay. And sometimes I'm going to do things that are more on the feminine spectrum, and sometimes I'm going to do things that are more on them. That's when it really, really works. But that's a really hard lesson, and it's a really hard lesson for a young gay man to try to figure out, right? And so I didn't figure it out till I was 45. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Anything else you'd like to to share? Uh, and give me the name of your book again. The book is called uh, The book is called Out in Time. It's actually a play a play on the words, and it, you know, the subtitle of it is The Public Lives of Gay Men from Stonewall to the Queer Generation. It's published by Amazon. Out in Time, sort of like in the. the, the um, and I will take no credit for this. I will give credit to my husband, Bobby, for this title. Like mm-hmm. on a car ride one day as we were talking about this book, he said, no, out in time. Like, you know, each of these men came out in a different time, but people also come out when it's their time. And that's mm-hmm. really what this book is about, about the stories of individuals coming out. Um, you know, I think that, look, I think what the last thing I'd have to say is that, you know, uh, I come I I back to my graduation speech, speech from a couple of weeks ago. Health is tied intimately with politics, right? And like for us to make believe that it's not is foolish. And so that if we want the health of our population to get better, we have to like demonstrate and demand that that these things get better. And so I encourage, I have great hope for the millennials because they are going to fight for these things. I do have a lot of hope too. Mm-hmm. There, there's some real, in a good way, badasses uh, oh, yeah, out they're, there. They're so thoughtful. Like these interviews that I did with these 15 guys you know, the Stonewall guys were great, right? Because they mm-hmm. had the cool stories about being arrested and, like, mm-hmm. the love letters from the 50s, which were, like, really, really amazing. Like, you know, you know, uh, Wilson, one of the guys who was a black man who grew up in Baltimore, brought me, like, two volumes of his, like, love letters from his boyfriend. And that was really, really cool, right? And then the guys of my generation, you know, they're still dealing with, like, all the crap from the, you know, the AIDS epidemic. We're, like, we're, still, we're still, like, reeling from that, right? Mm-hmm. But the young guys... Their nuanced understanding of place in the world, their understanding of like you know I'm we're gonna debunk this like this like archetype of the white gay man and we're gonna make it something else. What it means to be a gay man was so sophisticated yeah. and so smart that um, like I learned a ton from them. So I have enormous, enormous, enormous hope. And then there's also the side that is a little depressing because you're like, oh, I guess I'm becoming a little bit the old guy that misses things. 
<laughs> I, I look. I I miss this thing. I miss things all the time, and you know, and this is why my great benefit in my life is being surrounded by these students who are in their twenties, who are pushing me and keeping me fresh and keeping me relevant. That's so awesome that you, that you aren't threatened by that. Once again, a great quality in a man is to not be threatened by. Uh, someone else's intelligence or power you no know, i think it's one i look I, I will say that i think that you know one of the one of the things i say to my students one of the things i say to my my, my faculty at my school and my staff is like you know what we're going to try things and some things will work and some things won't and if they don't work big deal and i actually think that lesson comes to me yes because i had these great parents who taught me to take risks right but also in light of what happened in the 80s and the early 90s and what i saw whatever what a great note to end on uh perry thank you so much thank you for having me what a great guy and i love when i get into a a conversation with another man about masculinity what it is to be a man and um because i feel like it's just such a cancer in our in our culture the idea of what genders are supposed to be This is the only survey I'm doing at the, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Um, oh, Gracie's come in with a, with a note from the, from the king. What, what word bring you? What are you all excited about? I love that sound when she comes running into the room I'm in and it's just, uh, I just hear her little feet pounding on the floor. Oh, oh, we're coming up on my lap now. All right. Gracie's going to help me. Gracie's going to help me read the, the final. Uh, can you hear her? We just went for a uh, a little skate. Uh, this is a happy moment. And this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Awkward Moment. And she writes, I've always associated the past with pain. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've always associated the past with pain. I remember living in dread of my father's anger. I remember loneliness. I remember feeling wrong. This wrongness festered in me when I watched my little brother die of a sudden illness. It formed the razor I used to try to quiet the pain. It formed the hatred I felt when I stood on the scale after eating a dinner of burnt broccoli. Many years later, I'm in a better place. The scars on my arm are faded, and I've traded starving for better coping skills. My depression is still there, but I don't let it control everything about me. I go to therapy, take meds, and have friends I love who I can ask for help. I've moved to a city I love and choose to do things I love. Last night, I was sitting outside. It was a beautiful and calm evening. I sat listening to the wind. My roommate's grumpy bulldog snuggled up next to me. The sound of the train in the distance was peaceful. It was almost like a memory. It made me think of beautiful things. I remembered my brother's laughter and his smile. I remembered the smell of the campfire and the sound of girls singing at the camp I worked at for many years. I remembered the happiness I felt the first time I realized I had friends who accepted me and understood my darkness. So many of us have painful pasts and painful memories. I know I'm not alone in this, but in that moment, I realized, excuse me, in that moment, I realized there was love there too. It isn't easy, but I hope I can remember, I hope I can remember that. So many of us have painful pasts and painful memories. Crazy. 
So many of us have painful pasts and painful memories. I know I'm not alone in this, but in that moment, I realized there was love there too. It isn't easy, but I hope I can remember that when things are hard. Thank you so much for that. That's, uh, I love when I, when I come across a survey that's just the perfect, the perfect tone to, uh, to end the show on. And, um, and I love Gracie. I don't know if you can hear her. She's just sitting here in my lap. She has been such a great addition to my life. And I think I have been for hers, too. I think she'd like me to get another dog, though. She's she's read all the books that I've given her. And she's read, actually, a lot of them twice. <laughs> That's the other thing. When I'm depressed, I cannot tell if what I'm saying is funny or not. I second guess myself. It's uh, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. But as I said before, I know I will come out the other side. It might be tomorrow. It might be next week. It might be next month. But um, and anybody else is feeling that way, be kind to yourself. You know, I I try to treat when my depression comes crawling in, uh, or in the fall when it comes parachuting in. I try to look at it like the flu. I wouldn't beat myself up for having the flu. So why should I talk badly to myself when it robs me of energy and passion and et cetera, et cetera. So if you're out there and you're struggling, be nice to yourself. Be nice to yourself. We're uniquely positioned to be our own best friends, and yet we talk to ourselves meaner than our worst enemies. Um, So that's my two cents. And uh, just never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.